Fabulous to see all of you again. Really, I'm sorry that we had to kind of cut the worship a little bit. We do have a monthly worship night where nothing happens but worship and prayers. And so I don't feel too bad when we have to cut it front end. Thank you also. We really have built the community around five ideas, which was pre-COVID eating together. And we're not able to now, but we're doing it outside. So tonight afterwards, we are worship, which we've experienced, prayers, which has been happening, and then storytelling, and we are Jordan's story tonight. But obviously, we love getting into the text, and um, tonight is a special treat for us. We're in a, a summer series of Jesus in Hebrews, just taking our time. I did last Sunday front end. I will do chapter 13, the back end, and everyone else. Teaching through the time will be a good collage. Joel's going to teach wherever you are, Joel. Joel's going to be teaching with Tyler one of the times. Dan is, Tyler is, Joe is, and so on. So it's a fabulous time. Would you extend your hands towards Dana and Susie? Would you just come pray for her? We want a bit of British anointing here, sister. Come on. Father, I just thank you for this powerful woman of you. Lord, I thank you that your word is it richly dwells in Dana, that she lives it out. Father, we just ask for your anointing to be on her. Father, that she would speak the very words that come from you, speak the words of life. Lord, she wouldn't hold back. Lord, you wouldn't be bound by no, especially be led by you, Holy Spirit. Thank you so much for Dana. Amen. Wonderful. Thank you. Push another button. There. Hello? One, two. Aha. All right. Let's open up to the book of Hebrews, chapter two. Um, we, I just want to encourage you to bring your Bibles with, if you can. Um, we, being so centered in a book uh, in the Bible, it's just so helpful to have because Hebrews in particular, as you will see, gets complicated at parts. Um, and it's like having a bit of a roadmap in front of you. So, Book of Hebrews, written to urban first century Christians, predominantly Jewish converts, who were really struggling. Um, there was a lot of, from what we can tell, discouragement, doubt, fear. They were being ostracized by their own people. Then they were being persecuted and killed by the Romans. And so honestly, one of the commentators I read said they were kind of in a place where they were about to call it quits. They were like, this is so hard. Faith is incredibly costly. Can you imagine sort of the first generation of believers? They're like, uh, I don't know. Is this true? Is it, is it actually what we thought it was? Um, and so there, uh, there's this kind of primary question, if you will, that we circle around in, in the heart of the book. And um, I'm taking it from Tim Keller. And he says, if God loves us so much, right, this is the question, why are our lives so hard? Okay, that's the tension. And it's an honest and somewhat fundamental question to the nature of faith. Uh, we, if we live in obedience to the scripture, if we are truly seeking what the Bible says, then at some point or another in our lives, we will come to that moment where we ask that question. If God loves us so much, then why blank? Um, and, and we don't have to be facing death to, to resonate with the reality of uncertainty, of anxiety, of insecurity. How do we reconcile what we believe with the realities under which we live? 
And the answer to this most fundamental wrestle, according to the author of Hebrews, can be found in the person of Jesus. Somehow, and that's what we're going under- to dive into, a right understanding of Jesus, okay, has the power to confront our doubts, to conquer our fears, to to comfort our weary souls no matter what we are facing. And so the author of Hebrews is going to systematically unpack this simply profound slash profoundly complicated reality that is the person of Jesus Christ. And you and I, as a community, are going to follow that through line every week throughout the book of Hebrews. Sound good? Okay, so if you remember last week, verse 1 of chapter 1 began like this. In the past, God spoke to us through messengers, essentially, through the prophets, through angels. Um, That's where the book of Hebrews begins. In the past, God spoke to us through prophets, angels, messengers, okay? Now, it continues, verse 2, but in these last days, he has spoken in the person of his son, right? This time, God didn't send a messenger. He himself, the only begotten son, came and dwelt amongst us. Meaning, if you want to know who God is, if you want to know what God looks like, we first look at Jesus, okay? Sorry, I lost my place for a second. There we are. Computers, you know what I mean? Um, So, chapter 2 begins, pay most careful attention. To what? To Jesus. Jesus is the thing that God has come to do. If you want to know God, look at him. John 1 echoes this idea. No one has seen God, but the one and only begotten God, the one and only begotten Son, has made him known. Paul, similarly, Colossians 1, he Jesus is the image of the invisible God. No one has seen God, but God's image is in the person of Jesus. You with me? All right. So it is absolutely imperative, friends, that we then, gosh, my notes keep skipping pages, that we then, let me go down. All right, give me a second because it skipped a page. Here we go. Pay most careful attention to the person, to not the sign of things to come, but the thing itself. No matter what you're facing, the author of Hebrews is going to say, pay attention to him. And this is why it matters, friends. We all have notions about God. Okay, The original readers of this text, you and I, we approach the scriptures with an idea of who God is. For Jews, it would have been based in the Torah. It would have been based in the the stories from the Old Testament. If they were Greco-Roman converts, there would have been this kind of subconscious idea based in the mythology of Apollos or Diana. If it's you and I, we often have a kind of hodged, podged uh, idea that's based in part media, part Sunday school part kind of general Western psyche, Um, and they're often so unconscious. But here's the problem, friends. If we take those notions of what God is and we try to fit Jesus into them, 
we will continuously butt up against the reality that they cannot be reconciled. We can't say, well, God looks like X, therefore Jesus assumes the same shape. The New Testament and the book of Hebrews is insisting that we do it the other way around, okay? Meaning, if you want to know God, look at Jesus. Pay most careful attention, right? Now, the reason this is so, we have to understand this as we dive into Hebrews. We have to be able to suspend, whether unconscious or conscious, our notions about God, whether that be a cultural notion, a familial notion, a kind of pseudo-theological somewhere in their notion, whatever our automatic assumptions are, I want to invite you to set those aside and allow Jesus to become the thing that directs that which we behold as the God. Does that make sense? And each week, what we are going to do together, which is so exciting, is we are going to read the scriptures we are going to meditate on the Word of God. I want you to sit every week with the chapter that we've read, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I want you to meditate. What are they saying about Jesus? If you're in a home group, let's discuss it together. And as we do that, may our minds be fashioned by the person of Jesus. And then, friends, all of our wrestles, all of our doubts, all of our anxieties are not met by some general notion of a thing. They are met by the person of Jesus. Now this week, we are wrapping up chapter two. Starting my timer now. I'll take that into account. And we are going to look at specifically, okay, the humanity of Jesus. God became man. I recently watched an interview with the Reverend Dr. Tom Wright, um, that's a name to behold, and he just sounds smart, even if uh, he isn't, but he is. So, um, and he was asked this question, which ties in so beautifully to tonight. He said, he was asked, what do you think is the biggest misconception or misunderstanding about the Western 21st century church or Christians? That was the question put to him. And to be honest, his, his response really surprised me. He said this, the biggest misunderstanding for you and I in a Western 21st century church is centered on the idea of the humanity of Jesus. He continued on by saying that somehow we have come to believe that because Jesus was divine, he couldn't really have had questions or doubts he couldn't have struggled with vocation. He couldn't have actually meant it when he wept in the Garden of Gethsemane. God, if there's any other way, won't you make it happen? He couldn't really have been sad when Lazarus died and he wept at his grave. Because basically what we've done in the Western church is we speak about the divine and the human nature being interwoven. But in reality, when it comes down to it, we think the godness of Jesus trumps the humanness of Jesus. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I, know, I, like, I know he was human, but like, he was still God, right? That, that's, and what we're saying is, well, he didn't sin because his divinity was still there, all right? But not only is that not true, friends, that his divinity trumps his humanity, but it also is a belief that is so incredibly destructive to our life of faith, okay? Because if we don't see 
the humanity of Jesus, if we don't really understand what that means, that he was like us in every way but did not sin, that he was filled with emotions at times, that Jesus got tired, that Jesus got hungry, that he felt tender, that he wrestled deeply, that he, that he, he struggled with the, the projections of others, the insecurities of the day, then we will miss something of the profound and transformative realities of a God who became flesh. Therefore, this evening, we are going to follow Hebrews 2 and soak ourselves in a fully human Jesus. Okay? So, hmm, I am part camel, um, just in case you're wondering. <laughs> I often get people going, wow, that is a big water bottle. I'm like, I, I know. Um, okay, so this is what I want to look at in Hebrews chapter 2. Firstly, how does the humanness of Jesus restore divine intention? Okay, and then secondly, how does the humanness, right, not that I want it to be really like tangible, the humanness of Jesus reconcile our suffering? Sound good? Restore divine intention, reconcile suffering. Okay. Let's look at restoring divine intention. Hebrews chapter 2, we're picking up in verse 5 on the back end, if you remember, of pay most careful attention. All right, Hebrews 5, uh, 2 verse 5. It is not to angels that he, was subject, that he subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him lower, a little lower, or for a little while lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet, at the present, we do not see everything subject to him, but we see Jesus. Pause here for a moment. At the present, we do not see everything subject to him, mankind, but we see Jesus. What's going on here? All right, this is a quote from Psalms 8, which is really an echo of Genesis 1. And in it, there's this, this beautiful kind of powerful exposition on the intended dignity and destiny of humanity. So what did God intend for us? Really briefly, one. We were intended to be creatures of divine favor. That's what it means. God was mindful of us. God cared about us, okay? Same favor. Next, humanity, you and I, were intended to be creatures of special privileges. Not cows were not made lower than angels. You and I, okay? Um, I mean, I like cows like the next person, but that's not what he's talking about here, right? It's a differentiation of beings. That's why it's important. We were given special privileges. Next, humankind was created with a unique dignity, made in the image of God, and what does it say? Crowned with glory and honor. And then finally, this original um, divine intention we, you and I, were given unrivaled dominion. All creation was set under our control. Everything in subjection under his feet. Now, my question to you 
Does that resonate with your experience of planet Earth? Supremely favored? Unrivaled dominion? Anybody feeling like they're just the Lion King kind of moment? Just like seeing it all? No. I, any, no Josh? No, he's combing his hair. He's not raising his hand. I just I thought maybe you were experiencing divine dominion. Um, <laughs> what do we actually see, right? What, what do we actually experience? Our physical bodies are frail. Despite all of modern medicine, we are still vulnerable to disease, as we have seen more acutely than perhaps ever in our lifetime this past year. We are vulnerable to age, to accidents. Our resources are being plundered. Um, People die of starvation in one part of the world. While in the U.S. alone, get ready for this, we throw away 100 billion tons of food a year. 40% of the food in this country goes to waste, not after it's been eaten, before, okay? Starvation, total excess in, in, in the worst way possible, all right? That is not what God intended. What else? Creation is hostile. There are snakes. I think that is the perfect picture of a corrupt world, snakes. I don't need to say more, but I will. Tornadoes, floods. I saw a video this week of a sinkhole just opening up and consuming a bunch of cars. That is not God's original intent for creation, okay? The very ground beneath us, the very dirt from which we were made is in decay. 95% of our crops are grown in topsoil. It's estimated that in 60 years, that topsoil will be gone, okay? That is not what God intended when he said, the earth is yours, go, enjoy, multiply. And that's what Hebrews is getting at when it says, yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him, to us, right? Now, John Stott in his commentary on Hebrews writes this, from our observation, we see humanity despising God's favor, abusing his privileges, ignoring his dignity, and through sin, limiting his dominion. Mankind is certainly not as he should be. But what does the writer of Hebrews say? But we see Jesus. The Hebrew of, uh, the author of Hebrews continues that uh, in Christ's person, we see him, mankind, get this, we see in Christ's person, mankind as he can be, and through Christ's person, we see ourselves as we will be. Humanity is not remotely close to what God intended, Okay. But Christ came into the world fully human, and he showed us what mankind was intended for, and through him what we are being restored to. Listen to how uh, Bonhoeffer puts it. I just love this. Christ took upon himself this human form of ours. He became man even as we are men. In his humanity and his lowliness, we recognize our own form. He has become like a man so that men and women should be like him. And in the incarnation, the whole of the human race recovers the dignity of the image of God. 
Do you ever look at the world or have an encounter with people and walk away going, man, people suck? I don't personally ever do that, but I've heard others in, you know, certain situations. <laughs> do you ever look at yourself and think, wow, I suck. I'm so selfish or greedy or in my case, defensive, as my husband will tell you. Um, <laughs> you can laugh, he's here. Um, you know what we get when we look at Jesus? We get a man who, despite immense persecution, responded in love. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He didn't care about race or money or power. And when we look at him, friends, we are supposed to have our faith in humanity restored in the God image that we were all intended to bear. Remember that question, how does the humanity of Jesus restore divine intention? Well, for one thing, he allows us to glimpse the divine God image for humans actually at work on earth but we see Jesus. What's amazing is it doesn't stop there. Jesus doesn't come and just give us a glimpse of a shoulda, coulda, woulda, right? Let's keep reading. Pick up with me in verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made, look at the language, it's paralleling here, a little lower than the angels, and now crowned with glory and honor, same language as it was used about us, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy, this is amazing, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. So not only does he put on Display for us the intention of mankind. He also makes us holy and he calls us brothers and sisters, okay? Therefore, by his life, friends, we see divine intention. By his deeds, we are made holy. And by his words, right relationship between us, the children of God, and our Father has been restored. And why the humanity of Jesus matters is that if we can't see that he was human just as much as you and I are, except that he did not sin, then we will be unable to see his victory as our own. Remember what Bonhoeffer said, that quote I read a little bit before? He has become like man so that men should be like him, and in the incarnation, the whole of the human race recovers the dignity of the image of God. Or, as St. Athanasius put it, he was made man so that we might be made divine. All right, now to our second question. As if that isn't beautiful and epic enough, Jesus continues. How does the humanity of Jesus reconcile our suffering? Because here's the reality, right? We still live in the 
we do not see that at present, right? We live in that tension, that space between what God intended, what God is doing, and where we are now. But let's jump back into the text and look at the reconciliation of suffering. Hebrews 2, starting in verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, no, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be make, made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Here it is, final verse. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Because we have flesh and blood, he too took it on. You know, um, it's been a brutal couple weeks for, for me and kind of our family. Um, in a really short amount of time, there has been so much loss and death and I mean, it's just honestly, I feel like it's, it's I've never experienced anything like this. Um, I mean, just, yeah. And, and quite honestly, I, <laughs> I've been filled with a lot of anger and frustration. And for the first time, I don't normally kind of wrestle in that direction. I'm pretty positive. Um, but just honestly, how come, God? How, how, how can there be so much sickness and pain and inequality and injustice? If you really love us, why, is our, why are our lives so hard, right? That, that question at the heart of Hebrews. And in the midst of feeling that way, um, I had to prepare a message this week. And I, I came to these verses with all of that inside of me. And there was a moment as I was reading this and meditating on it, and it hit me like a ton of bricks, and I'm probably going to cry, but he chose this. He chose God of the universe of his own volition just because to become like us, to plant himself in the midst of all of the sickness and pain and injustice and racism and poverty. He suspended the perfection of heaven. Why? Would you or I do that? <laughs> If I was living cushy life, big home, everything going for me, to just go, take it all away, I'm going to go and live on the, on the street in Costa Mesa. And that is like not even comparable to what Jesus did. Why? Why would he choose this? John Stott again, when Christ assumed our humanity, he became like us, exposed to all the hazardous perils of our life and our death. He was not protected by his divinity from trouble or adversity. And when we find ourselves immersed in the hardest reality of the human experience, friends, I want you to hear this. He knows exactly how we feel. 
anguish, rejection, the loss of loved ones, the decay of civilization, the injustice of man, greed, suffering, physical hunger, mental assault, bodily harm, despair, loneliness, doubt. He chose that. Will you put the quote up on the... I want us to read this. St. Augustine, man's maker was made man. Sit there, I'll just read it. No worries. Just listen, man's maker was made man, that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread of life might hunger, that the fountain might thirst, that the light would sleep, that the way would be tired on its journey, that the truth might be accused of false witness, that the teacher might be beaten with whips, that the foundation would be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, and that life might die. thought I got all my crying out and prepping today. Friends, do we get it? He chose this, chose to live and die like us so that when we are tempted, he knows the feeling. When we are lonely, he gets it. When we feel weak, yeah, he knew that reality. When we die, he died also. And I'm not sure that reality really ever sunk in, that God, from all of his comfort and perfection, chose this, that life itself would submit itself to be bound, to be tortured, to be spat on, to be stripped naked, humiliated, and then very slowly and painfully have the lungs that he gave man suffocate him. And through his human existence, he reconciled a broken reality and a cursed humanity. Friends, Jesus reconciles our suffering firstly because he too suffered. And how simple and beautiful that it says, because he went through it, he is able to help us. He wants to help us through it. Whatever you're up against, whatever the sin is you can't shake, whatever the the enemy keeps telling you, whatever the dreams are that haunt you at night, whatever you're up against, I want you to remember because he himself suffered, he is more than able to help. Jesus gets it, friends. He gets it. He understands the reality and the brutality of this life. He endured it with nothing but love and compassion and grace and hope. And because he did it, we are invited and aided in our desire to do the same. His suffering means, friends, that we can suffer and endure with a more beautiful response, a more uh, redemptive choice, a more perfect way. His response to being tempted means that we have hope and that we have victory. 
but he doesn't just reconcile our suffering by associating with it. He does it by destroying death itself and the slavery that comes with it. I know in the past we have tended to overemphasize eternity, right? And there has been correction brought. We have to steward this place well. And I 100% am behind that. But in this text, in Hebrews 2, what he wants us to see, friends, is that we are not bound to just this life. You know that phrase, you only have one life? doesn't apply to us. No, we have an eternity. We have confidence in what's to come. Salvation is both a present possession and an eternal inheritance, which means if it isn't set right here, it will be for all eternity. And so suffering is reconciled through the humanity of Jesus, both in this world and in, which, and in that which is to come. I've needed that truth this week. So much death. Oh, but God, what isn't reconciled now will be for all eternity. I close with this. If you walk away remembering anything, and, you know, there is so much good about this world, and I... But this chapter has been about suffering, and that's where we've lived. So it's, it's powerful. I know it's hard. But if you walk away with anything, I want you to take that phrase, but we see Jesus. And I want you every morning and every night to fix your vision and your heart and your mind and your soul on Jesus. Can you do this with me if you're comfortable? Can you close your eyes for a minute? Jesus, he wants to captivate us with his kindness. We see Jesus, let him help you through temptation. Let him suffer alongside you. Let him call you right now, sister or brother, when you don't know your place. Let him redeem community when you've been hurt by people. Let Jesus crown you with glory. Let Jesus make you holy. Let Jesus give you a hope and a future. We fix our eyes right now on the person of Jesus. Whatever our image was of God, we see Jesus. We don't try and squish him into anything else. We see Jesus. We see the choice that he made. We see the suffering that he endured. We see the reality that he comes alongside us, that he calls us holy and then he makes us so, that he calls us brothers and sisters. We fix our eyes on the person of Jesus. Right now, whatever that thing is right in front of you, whatever that rock face, whatever that misunderstanding, whatever that aspect you can't reconcile, see Jesus.
Won't you transform our minds, God, by your truth? I think that this evening that Jesus wants to restore some distorted images of God. If that's you, wherever you are, why don't you take a posture of, of receiving, whether that's hands open, whether that's getting on your knees. If you feel like your image of God has been distorted by man, by bad theology, by pain, by suffering. We take a posture even now, Spirit. I want to see Jesus. I want that to be the beginning and the middle and the end. Won't you show us your truth? Peyton, do you want to come up? Wasn't that pretty powerful? Jesus is full humanity, just like us. I've asked Caitlin if he'll just sing a song over us, and I'm going to ask you to be pretty gutsy. If there's been some anger in your heart towards Jesus, for me it was Stu's cousin who died, 26 years old, of COVID this past week. She was deaf, so even when her mother was allowed to go to the uh, what do you call it? ICU, her daughter couldn't even hear her. One of my dear friends, when I was part of the other church planting movement, beautiful brother, Elliot Njonika. Just came back from Namibia and died last weekend. My own heart. Been healthy for 61 years. Now I, a man medically with a chronic heart condition, on the day that I set aside to fast and pray for healing for others, I get hospitalized. Jesus was a human just like me. So I'm going to ask you to do something that's pretty gutsy. While Caitlin plays, I'm going to ask you if it's true of you to come up to this space and either come and kneel or sit or stand. It doesn't have to be long and we have run late. But I'm going to ask you to kind of lay it at the altar, so to speak. Say, Jesus, I really have been quite the hell in with you. I've watered you down to my self-perception. And that's made me angry, resentful, and bitter. And I've missed 
the sheer audacity of becoming human just like me. And I think I knelt next to my bed this morning and I repented because I needed to. So I'm not telling you to. I am just affording the opportunity to respond to Dana's teaching and the wonderful worship we had early on as Kate and plays. An invitation. Stand where you are, sit where you are, or come up to the front and say, Jesus, I recognize you were a man just like me, us. And you lay down at the cross whatever it is you've been harboring against Jesus. Can we at least just give him a moment to do that? Shall we? Let's stand together. And in the standing, I invite you to come up if it's appropriate. No pressure. You know that. This isn't a charismatic high pressure thing. It's just an opportunity. Open your hearts as I do mine. Open your hands as Caton sings over us.